Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Ophelia. And I'm Jess. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in January in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. The third day of the year also marks perihelion day. The Earth's orbit is elliptical, which means that its distance to the Sun changes during the year. Aphelion is when the Earth is at its furthest point from the Sun and occurs roughly two weeks after the June solstice. About two weeks after the December solstice, the distance between the Earth and the Sun will be at its smallest. This year, perihelion falls on the 3rd of January at 38 minutes past midnight. The difference in the Earth-Sun distance between aphelion and perihelion is only about 5 million kilometres and is not the reason why we have seasons. After all, the Northern Hemisphere experiences winter when the Earth is closest to the Sun. We get seasons because of the Earth's tilt. 2024 also brings with it the Quadrantids meteor shower, which peaks overnight between the 3rd and 4th of January. Unlike most other meteor showers, the Quadrantids peak only lasts a few hours and comes from the debris left behind by an asteroid, not a comet. The asteroid is known as the 2003 EH1 and has a 5.5 year orbit around the Sun. Meteor showers are named after the constellation that the shower seems to appear from. The Quadrantids stands out because it's named after an ancient constellation, Quadrans Miralis which is not on the list of the 88 internationally recognised constellations. The Quadrantids radiant is near Buitids, and the shower is sometimes called the Buitids. If conditions are ideal, the Quadrantids has a maximum rate of 110 meteors per hour. The waning crescent moon will rise just after midnight on the 4th, so it will only cause minimal light pollution. As usual, the darker and clearer your sky, the higher your chances of seeing the meteors. Jupiter keeps on shining brightly in the night sky throughout January. It will form a close conjunction with the first quarter moon on the 18th of January. The two will move across the sky together from sunset until around 1am. This is a great chance to try astrophotography. See if you can capture our natural satellite and the king of the planets in the same photo. The first quarter moon is one of the best phases to observe, especially through binoculars or a telescope as features such as craters and mountain ranges cast long shadows and stand out more clearly. This is particularly obvious along the Terminator, the line that separates the lit and dark sides of the moon. Spend some time to look along here and you'll see the lights and shadows change over a few hours as the lunar day progresses. There'll be another astrophotography opportunity two days later on the 20th of January when the moon will pass by Pleiades. Both will be in constellation of Taurus. The moon will be less than a week away from being full, so it will outshine the faintest stars in this young open cluster. You can try and spot some of those stars by looking through binoculars, and if they have a wide enough field of view, you can also see the moon at the same time. You can enjoy this spectacle from sunset to the very early hours of the next day. The Beehive Cluster, located in Cancer, is visible throughout January, but but will reach its highest point in the sky at the end of the month. The stars in Cancer are fairly faint and this constellation is often missed. One way of finding the Beehive Cluster is to use Pollux and Castor in Gemini and Regulus in Leo, as this open cluster lies about halfway between Regulus and Gemini's brighter stars. 
those who are lucky enough to be in a very dark site may be able to see it as a smudge with the naked eye, but binoculars and small telescopes will show a sprinkling of yellow and red stars amongst dozens of bright blue-white ones. Listeners in the Southern Hemisphere can look for the Eta Carina Nebula in the constellation of Carina, the keel. This is one of the biggest stellar nurseries in our galaxy, but is also home to the binary star Eta Carina, after which the nebula was named. This star system is made up of two massive elderly stars that orbit each other. The largest of the two had a near-death experience in the early 1800s, where it released a sudden outburst of light and matter. It became the second brightest star for a few decades before the clouds of dust it ejected started to shroud it. It has had a few smaller outbursts since, and is once again a naked eye object. Material thrown out from the Great Eruption in 1820 has now formed a dumbbell-shaped cloud around the star and is called the Homunculus Nebula. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now, it's time for our cosmic news. In this part of the podcast, we usually bring two news stories, so one each. Um, something to do with space. Uh, and as you might have heard, we have someone new on the podcast as well. Um, also called Jess, but not our regular Jess. <laughs> uh, how are you doing today, Jess? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. I'm excited to be on the podcast and see behind the scenes of how you guys put it together. Um, but yes, I am not an astronomy expert, so I'm excited to hear the news stories from Ophelia and um, my questions will be <laughs> very layperson questions. <laughs> That's cool. Um, Jess is also part of the schools team here uh, at the observatory. So, should I tell you about my first uh, news story? Please do. So my first news story of the month involves, well, they call it a school science experiment. So we've got researchers from the Natural History Museum and uh, UCL, um, and they partnered up with uh, students from St. Bernard's Convent High School as part of the Orbits program. Mm. And they wanted to see how easy it would be to find signs of life on Mars. I'm imagining that would be quite hard. (laughs) (laughs) They came up with a really cool method, actually. Um, So what they did was they took some samples of a uh, what's called a microbial mat, um, and then they flew it up to the edge of space in a uh, in a weather balloon to mimic the conditions uh, on Mars. So the conditions were uh, very cold. uh, Temperature up there is about minus fifty degrees Celsius. Uh, you got low pressure there, and uh, uh, this balloon actually reached a height of about 33 kilometers. And it's flying wow. up there for 122 minutes over uh, two hours. Uh, so a microbial mat is something I'd never heard of actually until until I I, I found this story. Where what what what's what microbes is in, are in this mat? So microbial mats are collections of bacteria and other microbes um, that created some of the oldest evidence of life here on Earth. Okay, so they're replicating the, the kind of the same bioorganisms yeah. as the beginning of Earth? Yeah. Like single-celled organisms and stuff? Yeah, so these are probably, you know, 
one of the earliest forms of life here on the earth. Um, and these particular mats that they used were collected um, during the Discovery Expedition, which was led by Robert Falcon Scott in the oh. early 1900s. Uh, yes. I remember that exhibition at the Natural History Museum, actually. So even though these maps are really old, um, they're very well preserved and still show these uh, signs of life. So <laughs> it's the same mats. The same mats. So it's not organisms that have, you know, carried on like generation to generation. It's the same mats. It's the same mat. That's wild. Yeah. And, and they had access to these mats. They took samples. Um, they sort of split them up into two. So half of the samples were kept here on the Earth and the other half was sent into the edge of space. And what the, they were particularly interested in is the uh, how gypsum uh, might affect these signs. So gypsum is a, is a min- mineral okay. found in dry lakes here on the Earth. And astronomers think that Mars might have these minerals on its surface, um, and it might have preserved the organic molecules for, for life that, that could have lived in, uh, in liquid water that was present way, way back uh, in the past. But the problem with gypsum is that it also sort of masks these, these signatures. Yeah. Um, so, and they also don't know how the radiation on Mars and, you know, it, the conditions there might degrade these signals. Okay. Yeah. I mean, do, do uh, atmospherically, what kind of conditions were? I know that you've said like, temperature is minus 50. Um, are above our atmosphere, then is that the same so, conditions as, as it would be on Mars? So it will be similar pressure, similar um, temperature. Um, it won't be similar composition. Yeah. Um, but that's not what they're looking for at the at the moment so they want to know if one of the rovers on mars or a future rover on mars comes across these these signals will it be able to detect those signals or okay. will it be too degraded because of the radi- radiation and so on okay from gypsum from yeah from gypsum and they found that actually they can detect these life forms they found that the gypsum, at those conditions, dry out. Um, and so you don't really get a lot of d- gypsum left behind. Um, and so you can still detect these these life forms um, or signatures of these life forms. Um, and it's actually easier than um, when they looked at the samples that were le- left behind on the Earth. Wow, that's uh, pretty exciting. Mm. <laughs> and so the Orbits program runs actually nationally now. Um, so they partner researchers with school students and over the last few years it's been running. Um, 200 students have actually published papers because of this program. That's so cool. I love that. And how old are they? How old um, are the students? So that there would be um, high school. Oh, wow. So GCSE so levels, yeah, teenagers, yeah. I wish I'd have had that opportunity to be part of an actual publication at that age. That's a really, really cool project. Mm, yeah pretty pretty cool project as well and um yeah congrats to to those students and of course the researchers that worked on it and my second news story um you might have seen it already you might have seen the video already uh but for the first time scientists have been 
um, a video using a laser beam from beyond the moon. Um, so this uh, this video was beamed by uh, the Psyche spacecraft. So Psyche was launched in October 2023. It's going to an asteroid in the asteroid belt, and it will get there in 2029. And even though we've sent messages using lasers before, um, they're usually done in low Earth orbit or, or at the moon. Um, but this is the first time it's been done in deep space. And the reason why we want to start using um, laser instead of radio waves to transmit signal is that you can send more information that way. Is it any faster? It's not faster. So they'll be traveling at the speed of light. Okay. They're both uh, part of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum, but you can just fit more data. Um, So... Uh, they use here um, near infrared light, okay. so the wavelengths are shorter, so you can fit in more data than radio is, which have longer wavelengths. So it's like when we went from DVDs to Blu-ray. Yeah, same sort of idea. Okay, yeah, okay, I get that. <laughs> more condensed. Yeah, more quality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and the video that they sent was of a of a cat chasing. So a laser cute. beam. <laughs> so cute. It's very, it's very meta of itself. <laughs> a laser, video of a laser sent by a laser. Exactly. Um, oh, that's adorable. Who doesn't have a cat video? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's the reason why they sent it. Partly, yeah. So um, before anyone worries, the cat isn't on the spacecraft. <laughs> it was recorded before uh, Psych was launched. Um, the cat belonged to one of the workers, actually, which I think is quite cute. Um, and it's sort of a, a historic thing. So when TVs became more popular in America, as a test sort of image, they they broadcast um, a statue of Felix the Cat. Oh, and of course, like so, it's like a tradition. It is. It is kind of. That's really sweet. And I guess you know, cat videos are, are just the internet. Like <laughs> that's yeah, it's the whole internet basically. I was at a market recently, and um, there were three stalls selling pro- just only cat products. So cats are, you know, obviously everybody loves a cat. Well, who doesn't love a cat? But um, yeah, very on trend. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a really cool uh, fact for you. So this data was being transmitted from uh, millions of kilometers away, 31 million kilometers to be exact. And it was, (laughs) this video was actually sent uh, faster than than most broadband internet connections. So that's really fast. So that's, that is really fast. And actually, um, after the video was received by uh, Palomar, uh, which is a, a, a telescope on Mount Pal- Palomar, when it was sent to JPL, NASA, um, over the internet, that connection was slower than no. the signal coming from deep space. Oh, what? That's, that's wild. How, how long did it take? Um, in total, it took about 101 seconds. Okay, so a minute and a a bit over a mm. minute and a half. Yeah. To go, how many millions of kilometres is that? 31 million kilometres. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. How far is the International Space Station from us? 
The International Space Station is roughly about 400 kilometers away from, from the Earth. Oh, wow. So that kind of, just from me as a, you know, non-astronomer, that puts it into perspective as well. I know that we would obviously said that it was deep space, but yeah, that is very far. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And it's only about a twelfth of the way to, to its final destination. Oh, wow. Um, so... The spacecraft at the time was only about 60 second, like seconds away mm-hmm. from the Earth. When it gets to its target, it could, it could be up to 20 light minutes away from us. Okay. So if we did the same thing, it would take at least 20 minutes for that signal to get to us instead of 101 seconds. Okay. Yeah. Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> Is it going to be sending another one? It will, so... As it gets further to test the time it takes I'm sh- quality. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Um, they did another test uh, last month, mm-hmm. but that, that was just a, a simple message rather than a video. Um, and the further away the spacecraft gets, the harder it will be, because you have to be even more accurate. Yes. And is that accuracy or, you know, the directions being controlled remotely? Um... By... The op- operations team here on the ground, yeah. Yeah, and how's that signal going to it? Um, probably by, by radio or yeah. by laser. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, fair enough. No, cool. But not only do you have to be more accurate because it's further away and so these signals will be spread out more, both the Earth and the spacecraft will, will, will move during that time mm. as well. So um, they'll need to do, you know, a lot of Some calculations. Calculations and adjustments and things to make sure that they pick up that signal. Yeah, I mean, there must be things that get in the way. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. Is that it just seems incredible that you can remain maintain a line of vision. Sometimes things do get in the way. So let's say Mars is, is, you know, on the opposite side of the sun to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the part where the rovers are might be sort of facing away from us as well. So we can't get signals from them. We can't send signals to them either yes. during that time. Um, and also we have, um, you know, spacecraft and, and rovers on the moon as well. Sometimes it'll be sort of, it, it, some of these are actually on the far side of the moon as well, so we can't get signals from them directly. Okay. We need to use a satellite to pick up that signal, and then the satellite will send us the signal. Okay, that's that's really cool. <laughs> Multiple communication pathways. So those are, those are our two news stories for Brilliant. this month. I mean, I know that you said that. Don't not to worry that the cat didn't go into space. <laughs> but are there any other like animals that have been up? Yeah, lots of animals have been to space. Actually, cats have in the past. Oh, yeah. Dogs. Uh, so, Laika is a very famous one. Yes. Is that up the... So, I think she was, like, one of the first living things to be sent into space. In the very early days, you know, when we when we first started sending things into space, a lot of animals would go. So, like, monkeys and chimpanzees, cats, dogs, frogs, flies. Yeah. And animals have and will probably still be going to the International Space Station as well. Yes. So uh, more recently, they sent spiders up there. 
to see like how they would spin webs. Um, and they just got very confused. Oh, because of the gravity. Mm. Oh, or yeah. lack thereof. That's really interesting. Is there pictures of it? Probably. I'd love to see that. I mean, I've seen that um, test where they use spiders and give them like caffeine and um. different things and they spin their webs differently with different stimulants. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. Oh, I'd be interested to see that. So we've been talking about traveling to deep space. Uh-huh. Psyche is going to an asteroid in the asteroid belt. Um, we've got this cat video as well. What if you were to go on a long voyage to Mars, to the asteroid belt, to wherever? Would you like a companion? Would you like to bring an animal with you? If so, what animal would that be? It depends on how long my journey would take. Um, I mean, I'd always want a companion. I couldn't do it. I mean, Psyche is going to take six years to get to where it's going. Oh. <laughs> it's really difficult. Selfishly, I'd love a companion. But is that a good life for, for a companion? Pet? Which is why the ISS, I feel like, they, should, <laughs> they could have pets there because they can come back and it won't take years off their life. Because that's, that's an animal's life, isn't it? There and back. Yeah. If it's six years. Mm. I'm on a tangent. I don't think I answered that very well. What about you? <laughs> you have a little VR yeah. space with, like, green. <laughs> we love cats here. At the Royal Observatory. I have a cat. Do you have a cat, Jess? I used to have two cats. Oh. One of them lived 24. Wow. Daisy. Oh. She's very cute. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone out there have a cat? And also, do they have a spacey name? If so, tweet them at us, at ROG Astronomers. We'll put this on, on our Twitter. We'll, we'll post it out as well at the start of January. We'd love to know if you have any uh, cats with a spacey name. We look forward to seeing it. And um... all that's left to say now is keep looking up. Mm